What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, today, my guest is Katera Aslami Tamplin. Katera is a psychiatric survivor. She's the Consumer Empowerment Manager for Alameda County Behavioral Health Services in the Bay Area, California, and the governor's appointee to the California Mental Health Oversight Commission. Uh, she's also the county manager for the consumer-run Pool of Consumer Champions in Alameda County. So welcome to Madness Radio, Katera Aslami Tamplin. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. It's great to have you, and I'm really interested in in talking about this whole question of how we do effective advocacy at the state um, and county levels. You're somebody who's come out of the movement and the background in the nonprofit world, and now you're both um, in the grassroots movement organizing world and also in the advocacy and county politics and state politics world. So I'm really interested in talking with you about that, especially in the context of the recent um, battle that Alameda County has been waging over um, forced treatment, independent outpatient um, commitment. And we're going to be talking about that um, a bit later. But why don't we why don't we just get started? Tell us about your own uh, process of involvement in the mental health system, how you got involved with these issues and your own personal story around around mental health. I experienced uh, a mental health system that was quick to diagnose me, medicate, and attempt to manage me. And that was later on in my early early 20s that that happened. But um, it, this, my story really starts also uh, with my early childhood and my family because I was born in Afghanistan. My family fled during the Soviet invasion of our country when I was two years old. And we, you know, we experienced a lot of trauma trying to escape. You know, we didn't immediately come to America. We had a process, but by the time I was three, America granted us political asylum. I know right now, currently in our country, there's a lot of um, debate about refugees and Muslims. And I want to just speak to not only saved our lives, but I've been very fortunate to be able to give back to our community and support others. And so having fled a war-torn country, my mother and father had serious medical and psychological problems. And early on, I, you know, I became the primary interpreter for my parents, particularly for my mother um, and her psychiatric services, in addition to other healthcare appointments and, and needs. Starting, you know, as a young girl growing up, it was a lot of pressure. I, I definitely am an advocate about, you know, not creating that kind of situation for, for young kids to have to interpret for their parents. But early on, I started seeing injustices, how people treated uh, my parents because they couldn't speak English. You know, there's a level of trust that has to be developed, um, especially when you're talking about mental health issues. And, you know, within a small community, the community that I grew up in, Fremont, had the largest population of Afghans outside of Afghanistan. However, 
we did not want our problems to get out into the community because even though everybody really escaped and experienced trauma, there was, there was a lot of shame and self-stigma around that. So it, it fell on upon me to be in the role of interpreter and um, share with uh, the psychiatrist what was going on. And he really started off providing my mother and I with family therapy. And he was in attuned to the fact that there was a, a definite disbalance of power and, and putting a kid in this kind of power position of you know, interpreting is uh, has a lot of stress. Um, what were you like eight years old or seven years old or something? Yeah, I was. And, you know, because we were, it, our services depended on it, my parents really worried a lot and that was passed on to me. But it also um, showed me how to address issues when they came up. Um, for example, um, it also showed me how to not give up. Didn't understand things. I had to find a way to um, get better information. What, and, um, what kind of services are, are we talking about that you guys were dependent on? Um, well, the welfare system, uh, we were on Section 8 housing. You really came as war refugees with, with almost nothing in terms of resources yourselves, sounds like. Yeah, my father was retired in Afghanistan. My mother, when she got here, she tried to go back to work, but she, you know, she, she had her hands trembled and um, she couldn't, she wanted to go into cosmetology and, and that didn't pan out because of her physical health conditions and her psychological condition. And you said that you saw a lot of injustices in this whole process of interpreting and then also coming to the United States and getting services from the system? Yeah, there was one um, story that stands out very vividly for me where my mother was um, needed a, an eye exam to get correct glasses, and she had both the far and near glasses. Um, and, she, and during the exam, the assistant did not know she had two glasses and asked her to you know, take the uh, eye exam and after the first one, you know, um, my mom said, this is very difficult for me. Should I wear my other glasses? And the woman yelled at her uh, in front of me. And I remember having to say, I'm sorry, but that was not the appropriate thing to do, to yell at my mother for, for not knowing what you were expecting from her. And having to say, can I speak to someone else that can address this kind of unprofessional behavior? And this was like at that time I was 10 years old. You spoke up about that as it was happening at, at age 10. That's remarkable. There's many of us who could never speak up about something like that as it was happening as adults. We would just be in too scared or in shock. I think it, what helped was it was my mother. It was easier to speak up for my mother than in, in my life, sometimes harder to speak up for myself. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the takeaway point was I, I had to figure out a way early on to make sure um, our voice was heard or else it would be, you know, detrimental to our livelihood. So it I, I was in survival mode when I was speaking up and had mindful enough to know that I had to be able to manage the situation and my emotions, um, which weren't always easy. But and that's over time, I learned that if if I can just 
make it simpler. Like, okay, I need to talk to someone else because if I keep talking to the person, it's going to build up my frustration and I will be less effective. So I just had to keep repeating, like, can I speak to someone else, please? And try to resolve situations with the proper process. So that's really remarkable. So from a very early age, you were brought into a family in a situation as a as a war refugee that really made you into a an advocate and an activist from the very beginning. And so what happened? And then at some point, um, you yourself started to get involved in the mental health system and you yourself started to have problems or? Yes, um, I, I did have it throughout my teenage years. I, I struggled with depression, long periods of sadness, anxiety. And I also, you know, was in an arranged marriage and I tried to get out of I did get out of it eventually. Um, but what happened is I lost my support system, my, my cultural, my community. It's a taboo to get a divorce in our culture. And I felt um, excluded from within my community, especially my, my immediate family, and misunderstood. So I went through uh, several years of living a secret life after my divorce where I, you know, had my own place. No one in my family knew where it was. I ended up in a another bad relationship and I was working in, in the mental health system uh, as a recreational therapist, which working within a subacute locked facility, I also, you know, saw injustices that, you know, as you know, growing up, it was hard for me to sit back and be like, that's okay. And and when was the, and when the marriage, when you decided that you wanted to get out of this arranged marriage and go against your, your family and the community and the culture, what, how old were you then? It was between 22 and 23. And you ended up working in the, in the mental health system just as a recreational therapist. Was that just because you were interested in that, that kind of job or were you, did you become a counselor at that point or how is it that you decided to do that? I, I got an opportunity at Cal State East Bay, back then Cal State Hayward, to work within the recreation department. And from that, uh, the, the dean of the department recruited me um, in, into the field. And I, I loved it. And one of my the internships was at the psychiatric um, subacute center. And so I, I did an uh, excellent job. I really focused on what I was good at was connecting with people. So they saw that I was able to relate and I mean, I didn't come in with clinical language and I didn't know the diagnoses. I just knew this is another person that's struggling and I want to hear their story. And I find it a privilege to hear their story. And I wasn't at a place where I could share anything about what my challenges were, but I was always aware how it made a difference when someone listened and so I just took that role and I built relationships with and trust with the um, consumers that were receiving services at the center. And before I got my recreational therapy uh, degree, a position came up and they had asked me to apply for it. And that's and when you started working in that new position, that's when you also started to see these abuses that were happening and that just really added to the stress and, and struggle that you were going through at, at the time. 
Exactly. Uh, it was, it definitely made things much more difficult for me. And after a couple years of being the recreational therapist, I got moved up into the director position. And so it was during that transition where I was also transitioning out of um, getting, going through my divorce. Uh, here I was being moved up. And really, I, 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 want to stress that I feel like I was given the opportunity because I connect with the clients because I could build a relationship with them and help them. That's so valuable in no matter what position we're in. And I was lucky enough that the agency valued that and um, gave me an opportunity to be the director. And so in addition to all these really difficult challenges you're facing in your personal life, you're doing this work and then you're really believing and connecting with the people that you're working with, but then you're also seeing the other side of the system, the abusive side, the hurtful side. What were some of the things that you saw that concerned you so much? I One of the, the examples that um, stood out, one of the events that stood out for me was um, a young lady. She was playing loud music in her room, and it was her wellness tool. She was dancing to it. She was enjoying it, but it was bothering the staff. And they wanted her to turn it off. She wanted to play it. So their approach was, you know, five large men. They all wore gloves. And they were walking towards her room with a shot and a pill. And I, and I knew what that was going to, uh, basically what that meant was that they were going to give her a choice between getting a shot or taking a pill and going to what they called the quiet room. At that point, I was um, a rehab director, so I was able to uh, approach the nurse, the head nurse, and say, hey, can you give me a minute? Um, let me talk to the young lady, and let me see if we can avoid either a shot or a pill. There might be a different solution. And I, I know he wasn't very happy with me, but he had to agree with my, my attempt to to try to keep the bad situation from getting worse. So I had walked in and she was already kind of curled to, at the corner of her bed on the floor. And I mean, they had already asked her probably several times to, to turn off her music. It was off by then. And at this point, they still wanted to um, medicate her. So I, I had already a relationship with her. I went by her bed and I sat down and I said, you know, hey, what can we do to really try to minimize the situation even further? And what do you want? And she, you know, she said, I want to keep my stereo with me and I'll be, I'll be willing to walk in the other room if that's where they want me to be, but I don't want them to take my stereo away. And I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. Can I walk with you? And can we sit and continue to talk? And, and she said, that would be very helpful. And so with the five large mental health workers and nurse standing by her door, we both walked past them. I said, you know, we're going to the other room. We'll continue talking, but I think it's okay for her to keep her stereo. And she won't play it, but she wants it with her. And it gave her a sense of like, this is important to me. And it, it allowed her to voice what she wanted in this situation without it getting worse. For me, I thought everyone should be able to do that keep a situation from getting worse. Because what you're describing really is is not some kind of medical intervention or psychotherapy technique that's helping 
her to recover or to regain emotional wellness, what you're describing is a situation of control, that it's virtually the same scenario that one might find in a prison, that the inmate is being told that they have to comply with the rules and there's a threat, essentially of violence, if they don't, they don't comply. Exactly. It sounds like seeing that and, and seeing other examples of that really showed you that the mental health system really needed some fundamental, fundamental changes. Yes, it was a very top-down approach, and our system relies on that top-down approach. And one other thing that I think is really detrimental in, in our system is when we assume or we come with this belief that the person lacks insight, like they don't know, and we dismiss them immediately just because they have a diagnosis that they they don't they don't understand the situation they can't they can't think for themselves or and and then we we take this authoritative approach when the fact is if we actually do listen the person will come up with a solution but it comes down to do we want to listen and how much do we value the solution that that person um, shares with us? So I, I find it very difficult with that involuntary outpatient commitment laws is that they, they go in there saying this person lacks insight and therefore they need someone else to make decisions for them when the reality is the criteria to even get into involuntary outpatient commitment, you don't, you are not gravely ill or disabled. So that is the danger, is that we're promoting this value or this belief that people lack insight, and we're making this judgment out of fear prior to anything ever happening to the person and taking their rights away because of that fear we have. Yeah, that's really the essence of violence, is that you're denying the other person their own voice and you control them. You, you violate violence as a violation of their capacity, their humanity, the integrity of their body and the respect for their mind and their own thinking, their own preferences. And, and so how did, so you were in a situation where all these things had happened with your family, you're in a, uh, coming out of a marriage and then you went into another difficult, abusive relationship and all these stresses are kind of building. And now you're in this job where you're seeing these very hard things to see and, and witness and the system hurting people. And it's really building up the stress. And it sounds like at some point that through you yourself into the system. It did. And I, I went in to see a psychiatrist. I, and I, I have to back up a little bit. When I was interpreting for my mother, the psychiatrist spent an hour with us. He really gave like uh, therapy and it was beneficial. So when, when there are times where, you know, People do do a good job. And then there are times, majority of the time, unfortunately, people are, um, psychiatrists are have sh a, a short amount of time and they want to just kind of give you the prescription. And so when I went in to seek my own mental health services, I went to a psychiatrist. I thought I would have that hour. And I, you know, I was just a, a mess. I was, I was crying. I was, I wanted someone to listen. And he gave me literally five minutes. He, he cut me off in, in the process and said, here's your diagnosis. You have, you know, major depression, anxiety disorder, and here's your, you know, medication. Come back in two weeks. And that was it. That was like, I have, you know, he said, I have to get to my next appointment. And I oh, wow. 
was stunned. And, and then, you know, to make the situation worse, the medication I had an allergic reaction to and actually was medically hospitalized for the reaction. Um, and from that, I really had to figure out how how medication would even work for me. And what was the allergic? What was the medication? What was the allergic reaction that you had? Well, I I got locked jaw, and I immediately stopped seeing uh, the psychiatrist and stopped taking that medication. This was my early twenties, and I now looking back at that time, I was not in the movement. Right, so like it took me several years afterwards to get into the movement, into our um, recovery, mental health recovery movement, and so I. I just wanted nothing to do with <laughs> that process. Um, and so I, I still have to go back. And part of my story is to go back and find out what medication caused that uh, allergic reaction. But I, I, I didn't write it down. I, I, was, I was lucky to just survive that experience. Because that's, um, a, I mean, that's a, it's one word, lockjaw, but that's terrifying. When your body seizes up, like that people do have muscle reactions to medications like that and it's it's terrifying you think that you're going to be seriously injured or damaged or you'll never be able to to stop it you don't know what's going on it must have been very very frightening to have that happen to you it was very frightening and i reached out to someone uh within the mental health field that i was working with and and she came in the morning and took me to the emergency room and i was i was very lucky for that support but but it was um a horrific experience and i i definitely became extremely aware uh, at that time that i don't want to depend on medication i have to know what what i'm going to take before i take it so I, and of course I changed uh, psychiatrists. So in that moment, your, your own advocacy nature, which showed itself very early in your life, came right online and really helped you to get what you needed to change the medication and have a different attitude towards med- medications and realize the risk that you were facing. Yeah, afterwards it did. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. And our guest today is Katera Aslami Templin. She's a psychiatric survivor and the consumer empowerment manager for Alameda County Behavioral Health Services in the Bay Area, California. Uh, she's the governor's appointee to the California Mental Health Oversight Commission and county manager for the consumer run pool of consumer champions. And then what happened next? I became more interested in um, other approaches to addressing my mental health issues. Um, again, like I said, I was in a, is still in that very unhealthy relationship, and that heightened my awareness of like I'm, I don't have the support from the relationship I'm in. So I I became very determined to free myself from that in a in a way that that was safe. And then I got more involved with Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Um, I started attending a support group because I knew, you know, I had an experience and I was at starting to look for others that were out in the community 
where I could speak freely and, and hear and, and gather support from. And so it, that's when I started becoming aware of the Alameda County pool of consumer champions, the consumer-run organizations in Alameda County. I got introduced to Jay Mahler, a pioneer in our recovery movement. I really became more interested in what are the other approaches to helping uh, me achieve my wellness and my recovery. So you first went to the psychiatrists and had a bad experience. And then fortunately, the recovery movement, the patient survivor consumer movement was there in Alameda County available. And then you got connected with that. Is that how you ended up eventually working as an organizer with the consumer survivor movement? Yeah, I, I became um, involved in a, a consumer-run organization, and at one point, after several years of being involved with them, volunteering with them on their board, I was asked to apply for when their uh, executive director position became available, and it was at a time where I said, you know, I really want to be in the community versus in an inpatient hospital setting, and I really want to help others connect to the community resources. And so it was the perfect timing. I, I got hired into it, the executive director position of the uh, consumer-run organization and got more involved with the pool of consumer champions also, which at that, uh, by 2007 was just starting and was growing in popularity. So why is this work important to you? I mean, why, why is it that you have become so involved and what do you think is the value of having these consumer run organizations well i think it's so important for those who have experienced the mental health system to be able to if they want to work in the field to be able to give back to others and i think it's critical that we have individuals that are in those positions that say, I've been there, I've done that, and recovery is possible. I think it promotes hope. It, it gives people, when they're you know, struggling, a different perspective. Uh, they, they think differently when they, they know that someone else has been there, has done it, and is, is right there supporting them through their process. I think those roles are critical for our mental health system and for our communities to, to heal and, and to get better. I think hope is critical and mental health has so much stigma to it. So when someone gets diagnosed and they don't know that there is recovery, that there is hope, it does become not only an internal struggle, but it affects everything in their lives, their relationships, their jobs, their education. I mean, their social life. I think my involvement with our um, recovery, our consumer survivor movement has been constantly learning new things about experiences that are typically really misrepresented in the mass media. I think a lot of, I, I started learning about um, the, the spiritual awakening for people. And I know you've talked about this, that, you know, that psychosis, uh, you know, can be perceived also as a, as a spiritual awakening for people because they're really connecting and looking internally more and, and finding ways to find meaning in, in their lives. I, I didn't go through psychosis, but I've been through, you know, again, deep periods of depression, extreme 
anxiety and panic attacks. And, and then later on in life, I was diagnosed with bipolar. I don't identify with the diagnosis, but I, I can see where the recovery movement helped me find a little more meaning to what I was experiencing to, so that I could get through it and, and find a way to be able to then connect with others that are going through it also. You said before that a lot of this for you is about social justice and community organizing. How has that been important for you personally, and how do you see that in the organizations and the movement that you're a part of? Well, this is a social justice movement because I think we, in the mental health um, system, those that have been trying to transform the mental health system, those of us that have experienced the mental health services and the mental health system, we see how in this day and age, it's the easy scapegoat. Anything that happens in the community community that people don't understand, they, they want to find something to blame. And the finger is, oh, it seems like more and more pointing at, you know, oh, they were not diagnosed. Oh, they, you know, the mental health system failed them. And oh, and I wish the answer was that easy. It's not. And, and it's becoming more and more the easy scapegoat. So we're misunderstood. And when we try to speak, not enough of our communities are hearing that perspective of, you know, there are actually effective other solutions to helping people recover and also the fact that when something bad happens the problem isn't that they weren't diagnosed or that the mental health system failed them there are many other things in society that are causing some of the horrible things that we're seeing that has nothing to do with the mental health system and and a diagnosis and so i feel that we have a lot of work to do to help Communities look for better solutions than trying to force people into treatments and medications and dependency on a system that actually causes more problems in the long run, more trauma in the long run. So do you see this, um, the scapegoating as driving a lot of the interest in involuntary commitment and the uh, pursuit of of policies like recently we've seen Alameda County adopt with involuntary commitment? I do see it as um, uh, contributing greatly to that. I also see, I mean, not only the scapegoating, finding an easy, you know, target to blame, but also the fear and that being falsely exacerbated um, in the media. So people are in a place where they're not thinking um, rationally, they're responding out of emotions, um, and that emotion is fear. And basing policies on fear is very dangerous. Um, it really, we want in in Alameda County, and I know nationally, we we agree we want more services, but we want the services that will help people. And there are a lot of us that know exactly what we need to help people better. Unfortunately, um, we have to fight against the forces that are perpetrating the fear and creating policies that will further push people away from wanting to seek mental health services voluntarily. So to take a kind of a devil's advocate point of view, I mean, I can imagine 
<clears throat> there are, are people in Alameda County or people on the board of supervisors who are saying, look, um, we've got people on the streets who are living out under freeway overpasses, who are in the bushes behind government buildings, who are um, living rough. They seem obviously mentally ill or obviously crazy or or something and these people need help and we are seeing them go into our prison system which is terrible we don't want them in our prison system and we don't know what to do with them and um, we think that just grabbing them and putting them into the hospital is the most humane thing to do because clearly if we can just get them on medications then they'll realize that they have options other than sleeping out under the freeway path overpass that they have options other than getting involved with the police and ending up going to prison that they can slowly start to get their lives back. But we've got to just take them physically and put them in hospitals, get them evaluated and force them to go on medications because ultimately it's in their, their best interest to get them back in touch with reality. What would you say to that devil's advocate? I would say before we would take that kind of approach, why wouldn't we try to give that person a peer specialist that, that checks in with them, that builds a relationship with them, and that maybe starts to just give them their basic needs? The, the hospital is not the long-term solution. Housing is the long-term solution. So there are ways where we can engage people and start um, providing for their basic needs that they may not be getting um, out on the streets, but that they would be willing to accept. I understand that there is within um, this involuntary outpatient commitment stuff, the, just the court process is about like twenty to $30,000 per person. And I, I, I can't help but think like, okay, offer them the support, offer them the like voluntary services. But how about instead of the court process, say, if you accept these voluntary services that are like, you know, going to give you someone you can connect with that, that, that you could talk to that, that will bring, you know, a blanket or food for you here and there. And, and then how about offer them instead of that court process, a safe place to live in. So you're saying I, that just the just the decision that it, that the system makes to put somebody through the legal process, the court process, not paying for the hospitalization, not paying for the psychiatrist or the doctor or the nurses or anything like that. Just the legal paperwork costs $20,000 per person around the involuntary outpatient commitment? Yes. That could easily be spent so much more productively in terms of housing or in terms of a counselor to meet with the person. I mean, that just seems very, very backwards. But then the, the devil's advocate position would say, look, that's that's a nice idea. You go and meet them, you you offer them housing, but it's not going to work. That, where's the evidence that says that these peer specialists or, or meeting people who are homeless is actually going to is going to help them. We what we know is that if you put them in hospitals and get them on medications, that will calm them down and that will get them back to reality. Why is all this other stuff? Why do you say this is going to work? Well, what I do know is that this 
So there is the hospital system, right? Like when someone is gravely ill and they, you hear the horrible stories about what they're doing and that they're, they're, they really need someone to take action. So we have these hospitals we send people to. And, but I think what you're talking about also is there is a push for the in-the-community involuntary outpatient commitment thing as being the solution to minimizing the hospital use and and what i found out is right. that's once not we, true once we get them once we get them evaluated and then we decide this is their diagnosis now they're out in the community and we've got to force them to stay on the medications in the community that's the outpatient commitment piece that and, we're going to we're going to continue to have them monitored and under court control in that, their wherever there is their housing or wherever it is that they're receiving these medications, whether they like it or not. So you hear, oh, we need outpatient services to to help those individuals that lack insight and don't want and are refusing treatment. And if you look into the how they qualify someone for outpatient services, most of the time um, screen out the people that are very um, resistant to services. So our current system that, that says, okay, when you're gravely disabled, we'll, you know, intervene. And when you're a danger to self or others, we'll intervene then and we'll, you know, put you in a place that's a hospital and take your rights away. The people that are ending up in involuntary outpatient commitments programs would have accepted the services without the court process. So again, we're seeing the emphasis is on a, a control and like a public safety and almost like a penal system approach of using force and deploying control on people rather than having a more voluntary and and preventive approach which would save yes. might it might put resources at the beginning of the process but then you save money in the long term and and let's talk about let's talk about that a little bit about about the role of money in this this is all explained in terms of well this is the best interests of patients and their families but you've also suggested that there's a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money from involuntary outpatient commitment and the use of of force how does that come in as a factor here well i i think there are providers that will see this approach as the easier approach and if they were to get a contract to provide the services they'll make money off of the power over the top down approach in the community really um, what it is, is it's the easier approach for the provider. I don't have to work harder to engage you, to try to build trust, to try to bring you to our services. I could just use this threat that if you don't comply, I have this court order could take you back to the judge and, or take you back to the, the psychiatric emergency room because you didn't listen to what I was telling you to do. And if you don't have to spend time in building a relationship and building trust and providing services that, you know, that is person-centered, then you, you're making a profit from services that in the, in the end really doesn't help the person. It creates a consistent customer and a court-ordered customer. So it's a huge dehumanization of the whole process that the relationship building piece just gets dropped out of it. And it's about treating people for illnesses without really connecting with people as as people. Correct. So Katera, tell us um, a bit about your work locally and statewide. You, you came 
through the community organizations as someone who was really needing help and needing services and as an alternative to psychiatry. And then you went on to be working more on the political level in the county and state context. Tell us about your work around that. Well, my work locally in Alameda County is with the county behavioral health care system. And I bring um, the recovery vision to the leadership there. And I also bring the voice of the consumer survivors in the community that I work with to, to the leadership table. So when policies and decisions are made, not only is the community informed, but then the policies are informed by what the community feels and is appropriate and is not. And we work with the consumer-run organizations in our county and, and the efforts to really further bringing people together, bringing consumers, survivors, uh, clients, ex-patients together, identifying problems, looking for solutions, and really finding ways to outreach, educate, and get people involved in transforming the mental health system. So that's what the pool of consumer champions we do. It's got a thousand and fifteen members, mental health survivors who have joined, went through an orientation to be part of the pool of consumer champions who have committed to the recovery values. And we engaged them basically uh, through committees, through conferences, through um, education and training seminars, so many things that we do throughout the year to really get people. And we um, employ them to run it. So it's really ran by the people. My staff and myself are, are actually considered as staff support. It's just rich with the involvement of the people that it serves. So that is one of the ways where um, I fulfill my job in, in making sure the voices of the people that are served within the mental health system are elevated and have an opportunity to impact um, our system. And so then outside of the pool of consumer champions, um, like I said, there's consumer-run organizations. I think it's really valuable. It's, it's critical. Every community supports the leadership and the employment of people with lived experience within the mental health system. So we work collaboratively and we're very involved in our community and we're involved in the state level. So part of my work at the state level um, on the Mental Health Oversight and Accountability Commission is I sit in the seat of someone who's experienced the mental health system and to be able to make sure that our, our state oversight of our county services and what the voters of California voted for, which was um, Proposition 63, um, the Mental Health Services Act, is aligned with the peer, the recovery vision that is about engaging the users of mental health services and their families and making sure that our system is accountable and helping people Recover. So the Mental Health Services Act was a specific fund that was established by the state, and it was intended to go into mental health innovations. Is that right? Community mental health services and innovations is one of the components. Yeah, there's um, several components within the Mental Health Services Act. Innovations is one. Prevention and early intervention is another. Community services and supports technology and 
you know, improving our ability to provide and gather data is another area. And then the, the last but not least is workforce education and training. And so these components were written within the Mental Health Services Act, which is a really transformative law that was passed, again, by the voters of California. And the legislators can't take that away from us unless the voters of California say they don't want it anymore. And hopefully, you know, we've seen so much positive change in our community. We have a lot more to do throughout our state, but the Mental Health Services Act brings a lot of resources throughout California. Has it been really applied in the direction that it needs to be applied to, or has it been a lot of the same um, traditional services that haven't really worked for people? Are they the ones that are tending to get the money? Well, I I believe that it has applied in the way we want to see it. I believe we have uh, opportunities to help improve it, uh, make uh, continue to make an impact, but it has increased funding for programs for you know, that are led by family members, that are led by consumers, survivors, um, that are focused on recovery. And there's, you know, a lot of effort to be able to um, really make sure that we're moving California in a direction that's showing that people are getting well and experiencing recovery. Katera, we are just about out of time. Um, if people want to find out more about your work, more about the pool of consumer champions and the um, involuntary outpatient commitment struggle in Alameda County and around the country, and they want to get in, in touch with you, how should they how should they follow up with that? They can definitely visit us at www pocc.org. My email is K A S as in Sam L A M as in Mary I at A C B H C S dot org. And that really stands for Alameda County Behavioral Health Care Services dot org. So people can email me and you can find me on Facebook. <laughs> it's Katera Aslami Tamplin. I'm easily accessible and, and we'll be happy to provide any kind of uh, support for anybody that, that or any answer any questions that people have. Katera Aslami Tamplin, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Katera Aslami Tamplin. She's a psychiatric survivor and consumer empowerment manager for Alameda County Behavioral Health Services in the Bay Area, California. She's the governor appointee to the California Mental Health Oversight Commission and the county manager for the Pool of Consumer Champions. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. Music.